ಅಕ್ಯಾನತಿಂದಸ್ಯಾನಂಜನಾಶಲಕಾಯಕ್ಷುರುಮಿಲಿತೇ ವಿಶ್ವಚಾರ್ಯಪ್ರಭಾರ್ಜಿವ್ಯಕಾರುಣ್ಯಮೂರ್ತೇಶ್ರೀಭಗವತಮಾಧುರ್ಯಗೀತ
And it's divided into two sections, Purva and Uttara, the beginning and the last. The beginning section I'm going to read from consists of 49 verses, and it's centered on Brahma, Lord Brahma's explanation of the Gopal Mantra to the Kumaras. Shruti Devi begins the, the narrative and takes us to, as the literatures often do, times gone by in another circumstance, the conversation between Brahma and the Kumaras. But briefly, before I do that, uh, the latter half of the book is a hundred slokas, Uttartapani, and it consists primarily of a discussion between Brahma and Narayan, a conversation that's cited by Durvas based on the inquiries of the gopis led by Sri Radhika, who is named Gandharvika or Gandharvi in this Upanishad. So that's the Shruti name for Sri Radha. So she directly appears in the latter half of the text and in many respects gives rise to the whole Upanishad, her questioning. But she appears, of course, here in the Purvatapani as well in terms of the explanation of Gopal Mantra, which is the principal mantra of our Sampradaya. Gopal Mantra means the 18-syllable mantra from which all Krishna mantras are said to be derived. Even the mantra Mahaprabhu chanted was a 10-syllable mantra. Gopakumar of Bhagavatamrita, 10-syllable mantras derived from this 18-syllable mantra. Promises. Tad Esha Shloka. He says that there's a shloka in this uh, connection. And that means in connection with explanation of the Gopal Mantra, which should be given at the time of initiation. Some explanation. Of course, we could explain at great length. Here's a whole Upanishad giving an explanation. And in effect, really, all of such explanations are for the purpose of helping us to pay attention and concentrate on the mantra by which we can gain the fruits that it has to offer. That is to say that merely by understanding it theoretically, we haven't really gone anywhere unless such theoretical understanding inspires us to actually to chant the mantra and with wholeheartedly and selflessly and with um, attention and so on. And then, uh, as I say, such theoretical understanding will be fruitful and meaningful. Otherwise, it, if it doesn't lead to that, it's merely a distraction, a big distraction, a very big distraction, because it's very easy to deceive oneself by an intellectual sleight of hand and think that one is actually, position has actually changed by accumulation of, of theoretical knowledge, when in fact... It hasn't, unless that knowledge is applied. So, he says, Tadesha Shloka. So there's a verse in this connection. He says, Klim iti etad adho adaya krishnaya govindaya gopijana balavaya iti brihad bhanava yas akrid ucharid yoso katis tasyasti mankshu nanya gatisyat iti he says, first, one first utters, he's teaching how to chant this mantra, one first utters the seed, bling, following it with Krishnaya, <coughs> Govindaya, then Gopi Jana Balavaya. 
one who even utters this mantra once, concluding with the great daughter of the sun, will attain the supreme destination. He will know no other destination. The explanation requires some explanation. As you can see, these Upanishads are rather abstract. In fact, the mantras are secret, of course, and meant to be imparted from by the guru to the disciple, to the qualified disciple. And here we find it's written about in Upanishad, and as you know, in times gone by, of course, these Upanishads were not readily available. They didn't have printing presses, so they weren't widely circulated. Only qualified people would study them and explain them to the masses as was appropriate according to the level of their eligibility. Now, of course, we have printing presses and these books are can be widely circulated and examined by all types of people who have purchased the book. Sanatana Basami Prabhu has mentioned in his commentary on Brihad Bhagavatamrita in connection with the Brahmana who received the Gopal Mantra, ten-syllable Gopal Mantra from goddess uh, Kamiko or Devi. Durga actually presides over this mantra. He received the mantra in a dream and ultimately he went to, to Vrindavan. He met the famous Gopal Kumar and Gopal Kumar told him, oh, I got the same <coughs> mantra and this is what happened to me. He tells his story. How by the grace of the mantra and Krishna Nam and Krishna Sankirtan, he attained his swarup, his identity, as a friend, dear friend of Krishna. <clears throat> dear most friend of Krishna, uh, because he chanted, as I mentioned, ten-syllable Gopal Mantra. So the ten-syllable Gopal Mantra, two names are left out, Krishnaya and Govindaya. In Gopijana Balabhaya, this refers to the full sense of Krishna. The full sense of Krishna means Krishna in terms of his romantic life. Not everyone is entirely privy to that, even in Braj. So who are we to think about that and to aspire for that? Such a secret and high thing. And even those who are aware of it and completely involved in it don't talk about it openly in Vrindavan. <laughs> it's a secret, very secret idea. But it is the heart of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, so we do have to talk about it to some extent. So I say he was dear most friend of Krishna. It's not directly revealed in Brihad Bhagavatamrita. What type of Gopa, Gopakumar or Swarup was? There are four different kinds basically of Gopas, friends of Krishna. Saka, Surit, Priyasaka, Priyanarma Saka. So the Priyanarma Rupa Goswami says in his explanation of Sakiras and Bhaktivasamrita Sindhu, they are the, the best of all the friends of Krishna. And this, of course, is speaking in terms of spiritual perfection. It's this, it's, all of this is a subjective reality which ultimately rules. But he's speaking objectively, objectively with the yardstick of transcendental experience and acquaintance with the fullness of Brahman, of Krishna. If we speak like that, we can say one is better than the other. But otherwise, what is best is whatever is best for us, which is a subjective reality. And twice, 
when this point is brought up of the superiority, objective superiority of Sringarasa, which Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami says, therefore I call it Madhurdhya, sweet. Twice when he brings this up, he qualifies that by saying, but best, we should note, best is what is best for each devotee. But among the friends of Krishna that know about the romantic life of Krishna, oh, then we can say objectively that that's best. Hmm? Uh, others may know, the Priyasakas they know, but they don't get involved. The Priyanarmas know, but they get involved. Because Gopi Janabalabhaya, this name, for Gopi Janabalabhaya, it means, it's in the dative case, to Gopi Janabalabhaya, or for Gopi Janabalabhaya, I offer myself. Hmm? Because this was his mantra, Gopakumar's mantra, including the names Govindaya and Krishnaya, then, oh, he must be coming acquainted with the romantic life of Krishna through that, in the context of Sakya Rasa. And there are other subtle indications in the text itself. But the full mantra, 18 syllable, as I say, from which the 10 syllable or 12 syllable and different, different mantras that are derived from this, in the full mantra, you can see it takes us the whole scope, offers us access to the whole scope of Krishna Lila. Krishnaya means Krishna. And Krishna is the name that is relative to Krishna in all of his Lila. He's Krishna in Vrindavan. He's Krishna in Mathura. He's Krishna in Dwarka also. He's not Govinda in Dwarka. He's not Gopi Janabalaba in Dwarka. But he's Krishna. Govinda means cow herding, among other things, many things. But it is, this name was given to him in his cowherd Leela, in real, all in relation to the cows. When did he get the name Govinda? Who can say? Indra, Surabi, different commentators have said different things. Some say Indra said, some said they all said at once, including Surabi. Indra was there, Brahma, Mahadev, and so many demigods had appeared. Indra had had done the worst possible thing. He, he tried to kill the cows. Imagine this. Indra tried to kill the cows of Vrindavan. That's inconceivable. How deceived, deluded he became, thinking that this, oh, the cows are dear to him. I'll, I'll kill the cows. Indra, this is, this is, you have to understand, this is something extraordinary. How could the king of heaven ever think of killing a cow? Would speak of Krishna's cows. So this is, there's a higher purpose for this, and and we're, we're to learn something from the Leela. But anyway, in the context of that Leela, after it was all over, or Indra sent all of his wrath onto Vrindavan, and nothing happened. No one was hurt. Not a leaf fell from a tree, Jiva Goswami says, in spite of all of the winds and rain and lightning. Then he, uh, he realized that he must have made some mistake here. He approached Brahma and asked what to do. Brahma said, don't ask me. What can I do? I went there and caused a disturbance also. Stole his calves and coward boys. And I realized what I'd done. I offered so many prayers. And in those prayers of Lord Brahma, the whole Bodhi of Aishnav Siddhanta is found. Chapter 14 of the 10th canto. So profound. Such profound prayers. And what happened afterwards? He, he told Indra Krishna, didn't even say anything. He was just silent. So I just paid my dandavats and got out of there. 
what can I tell you? What you, what you did, <laughs> what to do. <laughs> but he did make a suggestion. He said, go to Surabi and talk to her because she's the, the goddess of the cows and your wrath was vented on the cows, the cowherd people. So he went to Surabi, explained his case. She said, come with me, we'll go. Don't be afraid. She's not afraid of Govinda. But uh, Indra was at that time. So anyway, they went and, and hovered above in the sky. Krishna noticed. Krishna was with all of his friends, and he noticed, oh, uh, Indra has come. And so he made it easy on Indra. Uh, he went to a secluded place. He told his friends, you wait here. I'll be right back. Because if you have to fess up and force somebody, and, uh, you know, and there's a whole group of his friends around, it's a little more difficult. Hmm? So Krishna kindly went to a secluded place. And also means for us to the bhajan and, and the real inner practice where we really are involved in self-examination and so forth requires some privacy. We do do prayer in a group in Sankirtan, but we also do prayer in private. Mahaprabhu's Leela has showed this. Began with kirtan and lead to bhajan to then a special kind of kirtan began with the kirtan in the house of Sri Bhastakura, but everybody couldn't participate in that kind of kirtan. So another kind of kirtan he performed for the common people come into the streets, such that their heart would be purified. And he engaged in that kirtan widely, traveling throughout India. And then, what did he do? He spent time privately doing bhajan for many years in Puri. Devotees did not have as much access to him. Practically, physically as much access to him, and esoterically he was less accessible. He was lost and bewildered and intoxicated, maddened by the love that he was cultivating. And he shows us that from that principal type of kirtan that cleanses the heart, that qualifies us for contemplation, dhyan, this is a dhyan, this mantra, this meditation, this japa, japa's done quietly, seclusion. From this type of practice, then the full fruits of kirtan can be <laughs> taken advantage of. This is the idea. And so, through that we can enter into the kirtan in Navadweep, in Nadia, <laughs> that Mahaprabhu didn't just let anybody in. He came out to let them in, but he came out to show a way to enter into that. You can't just go in there with, with your shoes on. So anyway, Indra offered prayers. Sarabhi helped him in a secluded place. And Krishna graciously accepted the prayers of, of Indra on this occasion. And then Indra with Shiva and Brahma and so many gods came. They all offered wonderful gifts to Krishna. And the cowards were all at a distance watching all this. And uh, at that time, Krishna was given his name, Govinda. It means who's the Lord of Indra. Lord of the cows, who's the supreme Indra, the supreme chief. Indra means chief, the supreme god. So this name is very much relative to his cowardly lila. It means, well, the Krishna name takes us throughout the whole scope of Krishna lila, from Vrindavan to Mathura to Braj. If your focus doing the dhyan, the japa of this mantra, is on Krishna principally, and Govinda and Gopi Janabalava are other aspects 
of your Ishtadevata, your deity. Then you can go any you can go into Dwarka, you can go into Mathura. But if your emphasis is on Govinda, then it will take you to, to Braj and cow herding. And Gopijana Balava to Braj in with acquaintance with Krishna's romantic life, either as a, like I say, Priyanarma Saka or in Gopi Bhav, Saki Bhav, Manjari Bhav. So here we are talking about this mantra. It's very esoteric. It's in a book. Book will be published. This information will go anywhere and everywhere. So Sanatana Goswami, as I mentioned, in his Brihad Bhagavatamrita, when discussing this mantra, the ten syllable version of this mantra that was given to the Brahman, which was Gopakumar's mantra, he says, This mantra should be explained by the preceptor to some extent. And it's explained in some books also, he said. But it's almost as if the, the authors of the books foresaw the day of the printing press and the making of this literary explanation widely available. Because Sanatana Goswami says, for the most part, they're written in such a way that nobody can understand what they're talking about. He, he mentions particularly Karamdipika, which is a, an important uh, tantric Gaudiya book that uh, all these mantras and uh, ritualistic procedures, this all comes from the pancharatric and tantric side of our literary tradition. Uh, he cites actually how the mantra is explained there, and it, it is unintelligible. And uh, unless you know the codes, it's given in codes. So similarly here, clean, for example, the seed is explained in ways that you can only cite pretty much what the Acharyas have said, <laughs> or what the book says, how the uh, different letters represent different things. And, um, and again, the real understanding of the mantra, or gaining the fruit of the mantra, will come from its practice, uh, applying oneself in relation to it. But again, then some theoretical understanding will be helpful. So we can get some, some clarity here, the first he mentioned the seed, clean. So clean means many things, but this mantra is synonymous with Krishna himself. So that means, as we understand from this book and from, for example, Brahma Samhita, one can derive the power for material acquisition or spiritual results in one's life from this mantra, from this seed claim. Brahma applied this seed with this mantra for the work of creation, but in such a way that as a result of doing the creation, he simultaneously awakened his uh, spiritual life. Uh, it's the Kama Beach, so it's, it's about desire. This world moves in <coughs> one sense by the force of desire. Desire rises out of inadequacy, so we're moving out of a sense of inadequacy that we need something. So we're trying to acquire, add something to our lives. The spiritual world moves out of desire also, but it's, it's also, a, desire is also an inadequacy there. But what is the inadequacy of Krishna, for example, that uh, such spiritual desire is about? It's a kind of an inadequacy to adequately, the inability to adequately celebrate the fullness that Brahman is about, the joy, that reality is about. There's an, it can't be fully celebrated. So the Leela is a manifestation of that inadequacy. In that sense, it's also based on, on desire.
So this kama bija, from this we can get, we can make our way in the material world, but hopefully in a way that will simultaneously promote God consciousness, and we can make our way in the, in the God conscious world, and very far within the, the God conscious world, very deep. We can go into the into the heart of, of the absolute, enter into the romantic life of of God, such a secret, private affair. So here he explains Swaha as, as great daughter of the sun. Previously in this text, Swaha has been described as that which makes the world go round, and further along as the Maya of Brahman, here as the great daughter of the sun. So what do these things mean? Swaha, as Brahma says, that is that which makes the world go round. Swa and Ha. Swaha is, of course, that mantra that we chant in the ritualistic yagya of the fire, and you, you offer the something representative of the world or your possessions or your life on a grain, for example. What does Krishna say about grains in Bhagavad Gita? That this is uh, life, in a sense. Anad bhavanti bhutani parjanyad anasambhava. So, food grains are life. So, symbolically, we take the grains, we throw them in the fire, we say, Swaha. It really means we give our life. Swaha. So, Swaha is, is about, uh, it implies uh, sacrifice. And sacrifice is really what makes the world go round. This is a nice point, because logically it doesn't appear to be so. Logically, on its face, if we look at it, we'll think we'll get ahead by taking from others. But we have to be on the take in order to get. But the, the mystery of life is actually that we get by giving. And we can say that, but it's really not very logical in a sense. It's mystical. Because simply by logic, we would think, oh, by, by seeking, by taking, I gain. But the fact that there is by taking we lose, such is the nature of, of the karmic realm. Just like if we borrow money from the bank, then we are in debt. <laughs> it looks like we have money, but the money we borrowed, we owe, and we owe the interest compounded on top of that. So by taking, we lose. We go into negative numbers, so to speak. So if we can get out of the karmic debt, we come to zero, which course, many traditions feel is positive, and there is a positive side to zero if you're living in negative numbers. But the Gaudi Vaishnavas like to say, well, are there any positive numbers? And they go all the way up to 108, <laughs> from zero to 108, <laughs> so far. So, by reasoning it would appear, and we like to function reasonably and rationally, but we should function reasonably and rationally to the point that we come to understand that, that life is not rational alone. Reason alone will never unlock the truth of life. By reason it appears that by taking we get. It's illogical to say that you will get by giving, but that's the fact of life. And all you can do is do it and experience it, and you can know, I got something by giving, in any sense of the term. Even if we give in the wrong place, still giving, we get it. We can never really give in one sense in the wrong place. 
but uh, there may be better places to give. Giving is properly reposed based on some knowledge and understanding that will bring a greater fruit, no doubt. But somehow giving, just like you know that fellow who gave to Prabhupada the toilet paper, mm. the famous story at 26 2nd Avenue, a drunken guy came in and Prabhupada was giving the talk and he entered in and let out a roar and frightened all the devotees that didn't know if they should grab him and pin him to the floor or throw him out or what. And he put some, I believe if I remember the story correctly, mm-hmm. some toilet paper down on the table and walked out. And what did Prabhupada say? Oh, his devotional life has begun. So he said, he is not in order, but he wanted to give something. <laughs> so he may be out of order, but giving <laughs> still is getting. Hmm? So actually we can understand in a simple way like this, that life is, is a mystery. And it's, a don't, it's important to use your intelligence in devotional service. And you want your tradition to make sense and to be logical. And, but that's not entirely how you got involved in it either. Prabhupada made sense. But the reason he made sense, <laughs> if you will, is because he enveloped everybody in his spiritual power, in his spiritual experience. And therefore, if to the extent that you're outside of that, and you look back at the things he said, you might say, this didn't make sense here. Why did he say this? This is a contradiction here. Well, there's a time when we thought, there's no contradiction. Everything is right here. Everything's perfect. And it was. Everything's right. Everything's perfect. But the logic, even of perfection, will have imperfections. Because logic and reasoning and words, for that matter, are inadequate to describe the experience of spirituality, what to speak of spirituality, you cannot describe even any experience practically, completely, logically. If a man hits the home run in the ninth inning of the World Series to win the game, you can explain how fast the pitch came, at what angle the bat hit, and what was the power of his swing, and how many yards or feet it went into the stands. and In so many ways you can analytically or scientifically, mathematically, logically explain what happened, but it has nothing to do with it. You can never acquaint someone with the experience of the fans who are emotionally involved at the time and the players and so forth. This is beyond reason, beyond the power of reason to explain. So life is like that. It's beyond the power of reason to explain. We should use our intellect, but we should never let our intellect get the upper hand of us and use us we should think critically, but spiritually, at the same time. If we think simply critically, oh, then we'll just become critical, even of God. Guru, God, and everything divine. Because the mind, the whole mental system, is mundane. So it seeks to make the descent of divinity, to bring it on its own level. Mind and intellect, in and of themselves, being material components, don't have the power to experience spiritual life, as does the soul, which is of a spiritual nature. So, to understand things, then we, we want to bring them to our level. So, in order for the mind, intellect, to talk about spirituality, it tends to want to take the spirituality out of the descent of God, out of the scriptures, and, and so forth. So, it has to be exercised by the soul but not that it will exercise the soul or suppress the soul. Very tricky. Therefore, sometimes we'll find, and it was very much particular (coughs) to 
the institution of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur in Gaudiya Math and its branches and of course Iskon, the child of of that mission, as or the reincarnation of it as you like, was also very much like that. Somewhat anti intellectual and for good reason. But we can't take that to an excess either, otherwise we end up in another problem where we become fanatical and we our heritage, our, our tradition is doesn't have intellectual integrity in terms of presenting it to the world, in terms of being able to, to think about it yourself. So that's a fine line. <coughs> of course, that's the fine line that spiritual life is about. In a simple way, as I'm explaining, how to use your intellect spiritually and not be used by it. And that requires that we under some spiritual guidance. We have to really submit to a spiritual reality <coughs> guide guru, scripture, and really submit is, of course, is a dynamic thing. What does really submit mean? Really submit means, interestingly enough, if you really submit, you become a thinking person. Whereas it appears on its face that submission means that you don't think. And that's what happens for a lot of people. They don't think. They submit. And they use the submission or the appearance of submission as an excuse not to take up the real challenging work of thinking spiritually, critically yet spiritually at the same time. In other words, they gravitate towards a spiritual tradition or a secular tradition full of rules and regulations like the military, for example, or, or something like that, so that someone can think for them and everything's worked out. There's no ambiguity in life. There's no gray. So they can't deal with that. It's disconcerting. But actually, what we teach, as much as we have rules and regulations, we teach that life is ambiguous. Life is uncertain. So you should learn to get used to it. Love is uncertain. Then life is about love, ultimately. Sutras say that the whole world is about love. Out of love, out of joy, the world became manifest. That's Shristi Lila, the Lila of creation. So we teach this, other than creation, besides that we teach life is about love. It's not reasonable. It doesn't have to make sense. And love is, as much as it's assuring, there's nothing more comforting and assuring. There's nothing more disconcerting. Ved-a-ved, achintya, ved Such is the nature of reality and that which we're after. So don't <laughs> join the tradition just to do away with uncertainty. Some things, some certainty we'll get from that. But we're entering into something that's also the nature of reality, and it's uncertain. So it's disconcerting. The greatest example of that, of course, is the whole of Krishna Leela and Mahaprabhu's life, which is so absorbed in that. So disconcerting his life is. If people look and say, that what you want? To cry all day? To cry all day and night? What kind of life is that? Trembling and falling on the ground. Is that what you want? Very disconcerting. But then there's a logic to it that makes it, oh, logic of Vedanta. It appeals to the intellectual faculty in a spiritual way. It talks about certainty and uh, stability in a real sense. That the world and its forms are here today and gone tomorrow and so on and so forth. So, Ideas that this, in a general sense, as I'm explaining, this swaha, swaha means 
It's about sacrifice. So Brahma says, Swaha is that which the world turns on, makes the world turn. So the world turns means it, we progress in life through sacrifice. Without sacrifice, we don't progress. It stands still. We don't really go anywhere. If we go anywhere, we go backwards. And while it may appear on its face that reasonably and logically, by taking, I get. The fact of the matter is, by giving, you will get. And as much as you attach getting to your giving, you're not giving, you're not getting. A friend of mine lives down the street from us, I was, was visiting. He told me that a friend of his, we were talking about Mother Teresa, who's in <coughs> first stages of being canonized by the Catholic system, a great person, who we might find devotees criticizing because she was involved in philanthropic work and this is Maya and so forth. But you'd be hard to find a devotee that was as selfless of a person. And so we have to think about that, what this is about, selflessness. Perhaps it wasn't reposed on Radha Govinda. You may be reposed on Radha Govinda, but be very uh, hardly selfless at all, but have some information in your head. So at any rate, to illustrate her selflessness, uh, a fellow, this fellow down the street said that a friend of his had met Mother Teresa, and he asked if he could give a donation. Can I give something? Can I write a check? And she said, yes, you can give, but not from your supplemental, not, uh, not from your surplus. You understand? I like to tell them the devotees you should give, and they say, how much? And it's until the point you feel a pinch. Until then, you haven't given. <laughs> if you don't feel the pinch, then you haven't given. So if you give up your surplus, that's, that's Govinda Bhog. You know the story. There was, a, there was a farmer, and he had a rice field, wheat field. And so he, he was wealthy, and one of his workers was poor, and, but he was a religious man. So he approached this man and said, you know, you've got so much money, big wheat field like this, but you never give to the Lord. You never make any sacrifice. So what have you got, really? And the man said, what are you talking about? I'm giving all the time. And he said, when I collect the mog, the wheat, then sometimes the wind comes and blows that, and I go, Govinda Namaha, Govinda Namaha. <laughs> Everything that's blown away, in other words, by circumstance that I cannot gather, I offer all of that, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of extra stuff that gets lost. So we don't want to be like this, Gubinda Bog. You understand? He calls it Gubinda Namaha, we call it Gubinda Bog. <laughs> Just enjoying Gubinda, not serving him. So don't give up your surplus, she said. So somehow we have to become givers. This is at the heart of becoming acquainted with reality. So therefore Brahma said, Swaha is that it makes the world go round. Giving makes the real world go round. And even in a material sense, if you want to get real about being happy, forget about the spiritual world, then you have to start giving. There's an intangible, unexplainable gain from that, subtle. And we should give of our material possessions as much as they are extensions of our sense of self. And to the extent that we understand that that's what's going on and we're actually giving of ourself, we will get more than material remuneration in terms of possessions. We'll get understanding. We'll get wisdom. Krishna teaches this in the Gita. Give of yourself, you get wisdom. 
the wisdom, then you could sit down and you could chant these kind of mantras and get real wealth. Because you can't sit down if you've got a lot of things on your mind or a lot of things in your heart that make you get up. I've got to do this. I've got to go here. I've got to go there. Ambitions, desires, and so forth. So giving. Giving is about cleansing the heart. So he said, this is makes the world go round. And then he said, Swaha is, is Brahman's maya. It's the maya of Brahman. So in this sense he's saying, this Brahman's maya means yoga maya, the maya of Brahman, which makes the spiritual world also go round, orchestrating the lila. What he's saying is that this swaha, in this mantra, that is non-different from Brahman, the Param Brahma. Param Brahma. What is Param Brahma? Jiva Goswami said in, in his commentary on Brahma Samhita, Sri Brahma Samhita, Para Ma. Para means what? Supreme. And Ma means mother. So he says, the mother means gopis. They are the best mothers. They left their children. <laughs> no, he didn't say that, but they did. <laughs> and, but they are the best mothers, actually. So he said they are the... Param, param means gopis. So Param Brahma means that Brahma next to the gopis. That is Swayam Bhagavan. The supreme Brahma is that Brahman standing next to Radha. That is Krishna. This is the supreme so, if this mantra is about Krishna in the full sense of the term, then his shakti must be represented there. Shakti is by which he's known. We know a person by their shakti, by their energy. We may know of them personally, but if we know about what they do, then we really get to know them. We may know him by name, we may know him by picture, but if we know what he or she does, which is through their energy, their shakti, then we know them more completely. So God will be known completely through His Shakti. He shines more beautifully, more resplendent in the company of His Shakti. In the company of His Shakti, then we have Leela. He has a life. Brahman gets a life. Otherwise, never says Brahma. Not much of an idea of life there. So Swaha means the Shakti of Brahman. So she's represented in the mantra, and of course, this is the feminine counter whole of the absolute. Ultimately, as we'll see, it comes to to Radha. But in a general sense, he says it is. First, he says it is Brahman's Maya, so by which he's known fully. And here he says what is he taking it further? And by chanting these names, Krishnaya, Govinda, Gopijana, Balabaya, uh, concluding with the great daughter of the. Son. This is Swaha. So what does this mean? Great daughter of the sun. Great daughter of the sun. The daughter of the sun is Jumuna. Kalindi. Her brother is, is the lord of death, Yamaraj. And Jumuna, in a macrocosmic sense, represents the Sushumna. Sushumna means that effulgent path of light that goes to by way of the of the sun to Brahman. You know that Brahman is represented in in the sun as Surya Narayan. And in many respects the sun is, is used as a, as a metaphor to explain the position of of God. And the path of light is mentioned in the Gita. 
by which the, those in knowledge pass from this world. So microcosmically, in the subtle body, just like our gross body has a heart, and the heart is kind of a, a crossroads of many different pathways of arteries and so forth, veins and arteries, that rivers that run throughout the body. and It's like a central airport in which many from which there's much coming and going. It's the heart. So the heart the chakra is a subtle subtle place of crossroads, of many nadis, subtle channels for pran. Nadi means river also. So the susumna is one, hundred and first of those. And the yogi can take that to the brahmarandram at the time of death, pass through and go to the spiritual world. So this jamuna means susumna. It means this path. It's a macrocosmic representation of this 101st nerve uh, channel. But it tells us something very nice also. What is that? You can practice yoga and try this method. Or you can become a devotee. What does Krishna say here? He says, or Brahma, one, he concludes, one will attain the supreme destination. He will attain no other destination. What he means by this is that he will go directly there by chanting this mantra to understand the Supreme Brahman in the full sense of the term Godhead. He will go directly there. When he says he will attain that destination, he will attain no other destination. He's saying he won't go anywhere else along the way like those yogis. They have to go by the deities presiding, as Gita explains, over fire, the day, light, the bright fortnight of the moon, and during the northern solstice, or via the deity that presides over the northern solstice, is really what he's saying. You have to go this way. If you pass this way, you don't return. If you pass the other way, the dark side, then you return. But he's also, principally what Krishna is explaining there, other than yoga mishra bhakti, in terms of shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, then you don't have to go by these different deities. Because Krishna comes directly to you. He cannot remain separated from you any longer, such such a devotee. And he comes to personally take him. <laughs> and so, while this has been explained here also in terms of the daughter of the sun, Jamuna Swaha, by Swaha, thinking, chanting the great daughter of the sun, Swaha, it means also that rather this complex process, you just bathe in the Jamuna, you'll go there. <laughs> You bathe in the Jamuna, you will go there regularly. That's what gopis did. Where did they go to get Krishna as their husband? To the Jamuna. They bathed in the Jamuna, performing the vow to Katyayani. They chanted this mantra. Well, they actually, they chanted this mantra to get there. Those sages of Dandakaranya. Those were the gopis in that leela. Their sadhakas, they went there. Then they bathed in the Jamuna. You see, this whole of Braj, this Vrindavan, is a very mystical place. The river is a nerve, is a susuma chakra. It takes you back to the to the spiritual world as the path. If you live there, you can become acquainted with all these things, the mystery of that map. It's an internal reality manifest externally. It's a map to Krishna Leela. Therefore, do bhajan in that place is very auspicious. Jamuna daughter of the sun, Swaha, but this is a Shakti also, feminine. Susumna is refulgent, light, bright, but Jumuna is Krishna, black, 
you know, another name for the Jumuna is Krishna. She's black. Maybe we've seen the poster of that. Sometimes they think it's Krishna devotees. It's the deity of Jamuna holding a lotus garland. She's all black. This is the Balabha Sampradaya picture. For the Balabhas, the most important place is the Jamuna. Because after Asalila, they all bathed in the Jamuna. The Gaudiya Vaishnavas consider the Rasastali more important than the Jamuna. But we don't underestimate the power of Jamuna Devi. She's black. Because she so much identified herself with Krishna. But she's turned black. This is the idea. And why is Krishna black? Well, there are different reasons, but one is because actually Krishna is effulgent. But he stands next to Radha and her sari is dark blue, so that reflects on him. He takes on that color. So Jumuna takes us to Krishna in this sense, and Krishna is standing next to Radha. So Swahami, ultimately, if it is that which makes the world go round, if it is sacrifice, if it is yoga maya, which means it is the Shakti Bhagavan of Brahman, then the, the principal Shakti, the Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan, and this mantra is about Swayam Bhagavan, ultimately. Gopi Jana Balava. 